Welcome back to Groundwork, brought to you by Lingo Live. I'm Tyler Muse. At Groundwork, we talk to chief people officers from the world's fastest growing companies. We get to know them on a human level and explore how they became the leaders they are today, how they've navigated their toughest challenges, and how they envision the future of work. Today, we're featuring my conversation with Patty Money. I think a lot of times we're, especially in high growth, we're, we throw people in and say, go figure it out. And I'm not a believer in that. I think ground people really, really well in the business, make certain they're grounded in relationships as well, that they understand and are, have the opportunity to build relationships that are going to help them be successful. For the past 30 years, Patty has devoted her career to creating strong, healthy cultures that drive individual and organizational success. She served as a chief people officer at some of the most successful tech companies of our time, like TubeMogul, SendGrid, and Twilio. Her experience is deep when it comes to scaling startups and has included multiple M&A and IPOs. Suffice it to say, Patty is somebody you'd want on speed dial whenever you're navigating change. In this episode, Patty talks about what it means to be a rules light HR practitioner and why it's been her philosophy from the start. We'll hear her thoughts on how to build a team that thrives in a high growth environment, how to ground people in times of turmoil, and the motto she keeps on her desk to encourage her to keep trying new things. Patty, thank you so much for being here today. We're super excited to chat. I'm glad to be here as well. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so obviously we want to spend a good chunk of time today talking about your career in HR and in particularly at hypergrowth technology companies. But as I mentioned to you before, I, I always feel like to get a sense of the person behind the professional, you really have to start with um, you know, their personal journey. And so I'd love to learn a little bit more about kind of where you grew up and what your childhood was like. Uh, and then we can use that to kind of transition into uh, getting into the HR field. So could you share a little bit more about uh, your childhood and where you grew up? Sure. I'm I'm actually thrilled to talk about that because I found that for all of us, we are a product of our families and um, there's, a, there's a lot to that. And I grew up a Southern girl, um, grew up in the South, which has influenced many things about me. I'm, I'm the ultimate hostess. I love cooking for people, that kind of stuff, which is a very, you know, not necessarily truly Southern thing, but part of who I am. I'm from a family of seven kids next wow. to the oldest of seven. Um, big clan, um, very close knit family. My parents were are, my mother's still living, uh, amazing. Uh, one of those love story families that you always want to make certain that, you know, your marriage lives up to it, et cetera. My dad was a serial entrepreneur and he was a person that, you know, when he had five kids kind of said, I don't know how I'm going to support these people if I'm just working. He was an engineer and working in, um, a company. And so he started his own business and, um, 
ended up starting several businesses over time, all of them very interconnected. And all of us grew up working in the family business and helping out. And I mean, in those days, we actually walked around a table and put catalogs together for him. Um, but it was it was part of um, our, our growing up years to be part of building something and part of making his business successful. I think each one of the seven of us worked there at one point in time, and all of us have our tales to tell about it, some of them good, some of them bad, but it was a great learning experience for um, the entire group. And we're still a very close family. So um, my sister is my best friend, talk with her a lot. My husband's <laughs> like, y'all talking again? But <laughs> um, so, so that's a real part of, of me and my roots and um, like how, how I operate from a relational perspective. Sure. And I'm sure informed your, you know, future role in people just being immersed in a kind of workplace, working with people where you have a very close relationship, if not a very complicated <laughs> relationship. I'm sure um, that was very formative for you. And there's some similarities with me. I actually, I grew up in Texas. I'm the second oldest child of five. Um, okay. So not quite as big of a family as yours. And my dad was also an entrepreneur, um, although didn't engage the kids as much in it. And we had a lot of hyperactive energy that was channeled into other things that maybe would have been best suited if he had gotten <laughs> us engaged like your dad did. That's so cool that he did that. Well, we didn't really have a choice, and I don't think he could afford anybody else, so we were fairly cheap labor. <laughs> <laughs> did he, like, figure out who was going to do what based on what they're strong at, or did everyone just kind of chip in and do various things as was needed? You know, it was different at different times. That In the early days, I mean, he used us just as labor to walk around and put together catalogs that he was bringing to, he was a manufacturer's rep that he would bring out to customers and talk things through with them. And that was something any of us could do. Now, as we grew up, all of us kind of did different jobs and we weren't all there at the same time. Most of us did some work with him while we were in college. I worked my way as a full charge bookkeeper with him. So none of the rest of my siblings did that. Um, I had a sister that worked in sales for him. Three of my brothers actually now own those businesses and are are still um, keeping them alive and thriving today. So oh, wow, they did so different cool. things and then ended up wanting to make a career out of it. None of the girls did. I'm the only, there's, there's four girls and three of them were teachers. I was the only person that ended up on the business side of the house. Yeah. And I heard, I read this somewhere that you thought you were going to end up going into sales and be an account executive. Why, why is that? Well, my my undergrad was in marketing and uh, specifically in advertising. And I, I really had this vision of myself, you know, being on, you know, um, in New York in the ad industry and an ad exec that was doing all those cool things. I mean, picture Mad Men, although I was a little bit you know, too young for that era, thank goodness. But um, but anyway, that was kind of my vision of what I would be doing. But, you know, I met my husband and uh, we ended up moving to an area of the country where advertising really was kind of non-existent. And um, I realized that that was not going to be what I could do, at least within that market. And so I started looking around and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life then. And I started working for Kelly Services, first of all, as a temp. And then they called me one day and said, hey, are you interested in, you know, coming on board and potentially being a recruiter? Hmm. And I was like, 
huh, I don't know, what do they do, right? <laughs> so, because um, I had I had no clue at all. Uh, but I started there, and actually it was an amazing career move for me because not only did I learn a lot about HR, I ended up being the branch manager, and I learned how to actually run a business. Hmm. You know, everything, full P&L responsibilities, how do you hire people, how do you actually build a business, how do you um, get accounts? How do you actually grow a business? So, um, because each one of the branches operated within, they had their own budget, they had to build their own, you know, business base, etc. So it was a huge learning experience for me, Hmm. and balanced out not only my people skills, but also business skills, which most HR people, we really need to be strong on the business side, not just on the people side. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you say that? I've heard you say this before. Why, why do you feel so strongly about that? <laughs> well, you know, when when we talk about the people team having a seat at the table, um, the executive team is a set of business people. All of us have functional expertise, but we have to look at what we do through the lens of the business. And so if HR is going to be an active participant and partner, we have to understand that business deeply. We need to understand the levers that are available within that business. We need to understand the risk that are inherent in that business. And we have to marry our people strategy to the business strategy. And if you don't understand business strategy, it's really hard to do that. So I just think we have to be business junkies. Um, I I know I, I feel that way deeply about the profession and that the more we bring from a business acumen perspective, the more impactful we can be to the business. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a, a chief people officer at a hyper growth company the other day, and I do this every day. We're talking to, you know, people and HR leaders at hyper growth companies. And I asked him just to talk a little bit more about some of the challenges they were having. And he started with talking about the top line growth of the company and the uh, they were about to be acquired, but they pivoted because they realized they had the wrong go to market strategy. And my jaw was on the floor because I'm like, I ne- I almost never talk to HR leaders that start with these type of business <laughs> metrics. They're often going right into, you know, employee engagement and and things that are really critical, but I definitely see that connection to um the business strategy and and he started with the high-level business strategy and then kind of married that into the people function and where they were and headcount and leadership development and talent management, all these different items, which was um, really cool to hear. So I, I love that you say that. But I, I would imagine that I'm curious if you think that you would have had that opportunity at um, the what started as a temp and then grew into a full time role. If they would have nominated you or asked you for that, had you not had that experience working with your father and your siblings, you know, building a business growing up, do you feel that that type of versatility and resilience was kind of cultivated in you at a young age and that they saw that in you? Or was this just kind of a fortuitous thing where you happen, it happened to land in your lap? You know, that's a, you know, I've never made that connection, quite frankly. But what I will say is my dad created, and I'll I'll say my dad and my mother, um, a group of people that were willing to experiment and take risk. That we we definitely had sort of that entrepreneurial bug the willingness to try new things and to see where they led. 
Uh, I keep a little plaque on my desk that says, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? Uh, that idea of, of just kind of, okay, like there multiple times I've gone into situations where I was like, I don't really know what this is going to be. And I sure as heck don't know how to do it, but I can figure it out. And what's the worst thing that can happen, right? I might get it wrong. And then you have to rethink it. But um, but I do think that my parents instilled that in us. And I also think they they created that desire to build. I mean, they built a family that was super strong. They built businesses that were super strong. Um, so I think we've seen that and seen that modeled and and seen the benefit of that in our lives. So so I you know, I do I do think there's a connection. That's kind of cool. I hadn't I hadn't <laughs> put that together before. And I love that. I love that quote. I hadn't heard that in a while. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Um, I feel like so many entrepreneurs that are successful, not all of them, but many of them have this just almost insane fearlessness about failure and uh, just belief that whatever they're going to do is going to be successful and are willing to embrace you know, incredible amount of risk. I mean, you look at like WeWork as the classic like poster child, obviously didn't end up working out super well, but <laughs> you got to give them credit. The founders were, and particularly that, you know, the CEO founder was almost relentlessly um, indoctrinated in this belief that he was not going to fail and that it was going to be successful. And so sometimes I wish I had a little bit more of that, but then I feel like it, it might serve me better in my personal life with my family that I'm not <laughs> qu quite so naive or almost, um, you know, relentless in the pursuit of success because I just know that I'm not going to fail. But there have been times over the course of the company's history where, I've had to tell myself, like, you are going to succeed. You are not going to fail at this. And it's it's served us really well. So as you talk about that, it's funny because it's not that I don't think I could fail or that um that failure isn't an option. Like I actually think sometimes when you when you think nothing's gonna get in my way, then then you stop being realistic about what's in front of you. But it's like you don't let fear of failure hold you back from trying. Mm. you know, from taking some risk. But, you know, I think smart people understand some of the guardrails that are around that. And if you look at WeWork, he didn't understand the guardrails, right? right. Um, and so I think there's a healthy amount of understanding that failure can happen and mm -hmm. that with it, you'll learn and you'll grow. I tell everybody, you know, my quote about myself is like, um, my zone of genius is hindsight, because I've learned so much from the things that I didn't do well and the things that I've done well. I mean, my learning comes from both things, but mm. uh, but I have learned a lot because I've tried things that didn't work. Yeah. So um, so I don't know that it's about being fearless in that regard, uh, but I do think it's about not letting fear of failure hold you back from trying. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a great clarification. Where, are there any, I'm curious, any uh, failures or successes that were so formative for you, both either personally or professionally, as you kind of grew up in your career, that you feel like made you really respect and acknowledge the power of failure? Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Oh, um, yeah, there have been, there have been a few, I think, that were super impactful. I think the first time I took on a head of HR role, I was unqualified. I mean, I'll just be really blunt about that. I I 
um, had come from Kelly Services to a startup organization that was actually manufacturing. Hmm. And it had all kinds of stuff that I had no clue about. Now, I learned a lot um, in the process. And I'm, I'm a quick study. So, you know, I dug in and realized I wasn't quite as smart as I thought I was and had, hmm. had a lot to learn. But there were things along the line where... Um, knowing what I know now, I would have spent a lot more time on um, understanding the business. I, I mean, I understood it. It was manufacturing. We were making escalators. So it wasn't a hard thing to sort of get your arms around. But really, the relationships that were critical back with our parent company, which was in Germany, um, things like that, that making those connections, I would have done a better job not only for the organization, but for all of the people that were part of that organization. And I stayed there for five years, had a good run. But I, I look back on that and think, boy, if I'd only known this. For example, we had a union organizing attempt. And during that time period, we did really good work. Um, and the union did, was not voted in. But the ability to really follow up and live into some of the things that I thought we should be doing post that event... Um, we weren't able to execute on as well as I thought we should have. And it, it felt like a personal failure on my part. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot from that, like under promise over deliver. Right. <laughs> so, um, love, love things that. like that. It's one were, of our core values at Lingo Live, actually. Oh, is it? Under that promise is. and over deliver? Yeah, I love that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Under promise over deliver. Yeah. Now you still need to promise enough that, you know, you're going to, people are going to want to do business with you, but, you know, making certain that you can live into your promises and, and even your own values, super important. Um, Absolutely. So that's, that's one, you know, I've had times where, you know, I hired the wrong person and that's tough from an HR leadership perspective. We're supposed to be experts at this. And, you know, um, I look back on my, all the things you coach other people to do, some of those I didn't do myself. You know, I tried to coach too long. I tried to make a fit work that didn't wasn't a fit. And it ended up damaging the relationship between the person and myself, hmm. um, which, you know, I look back on and I'm thinking, dang, why did I let that happen? I know better, right? So those are the human aspects that come into to play for all of us. Sure. And I know through through this story that you've crafted here, you're embracing failure, understanding the power of what you can learn from failure and taking risks and, um, you know, cultivating new ideas. And some of that, again, is from your childhood and that experience you had working with your family and your, uh, your dad, who's a serial entrepreneur. How do you go from, so now you've started your career in HR, what leads you into hypergrowth companies? Because a lot of people think hypergrowth companies are one thing and they're exciting and they're fresh and they're innovative and people, you know, have you play video games on beanbags and there's free kombucha and they like look at all the glory of it. But then they get in and they realize, whoa, this is a totally different animal. So what led you into the kind of hypergrowth company world? Well, I fell into that too. You know, it's kind of embarrassing that I haven't been more intentional about my career because most, most of the moves I made were opportunistic. Something happened. Somebody said, hey, Patty, 
what do you think about this? And I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. So I'm, I'm not one of those people that had like a map of where I wanted to go and what my next step would be. I'm actually very admiring of people that are that intentional about their careers, but I was not one of those people. So I ended up, we'd moved to Boston and, um, there was a company there at the time they were Agfa Monotype and they had just spun out as a wholly owned subsidiary for, um, um, from their parent and they were a tech company and they wanted to create a tech vibe. They wanted to create a tech culture. They wanted to really build this software, uh, part of the organization. And so I landed that role and, um, so the first thing I will say is that I fell into tech and fell in love with tech. Um, it was the right environment for me as an HR practitioner. I'm a person that's kind of a rules light HR person. Like I believe mm. treat people with respect, give them a lot of rope. If they don't want to operate as a grown up within your environment, well, then they're the wrong person for your environment. So deal with that problem, but don't put a lot of rules and regs in as a barrier for people to be able to do great work. Mm. And tech allowed me to do that, you know, versus prior to that, I'd worked in manufacturing, which, you know, there's a lot of reasons for rules and sure. things that have to happen there. I'd worked in healthcare and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for all the regulations and the things that go into leading a workforce in that type of environment. But tech gave me a ton of freedom. So that was kind of exciting. And I, I just said, well, I've found my home. This is awesome. <laughs> and um, and I was working with a CEO who gave me a ton of freedom. And uh, we were great partners together. His name's Bob Givens. He's an amazing man. Shout out to Bob if he ever hears this. Um, but we, we, together with the rest of that executive team, really built a special company. And then we went through a ton of change. Like this company went through a leveraged buyout with a private equity firm that was an amazing partner for us that was really helping fuel growth. We then did a ton of acquisitions and global expansion. And every time I turned around, there was something else new for me to learn. Like I didn't know anything about Germany and a works council and how do you work with that? And then we bought this company in Germany and I'm like, well, I guess I have to learn this pretty fast. Mm. I'd never taken a public uh, company public before. We actually went through the whole IPO and um, took the company public in 2007, right before the crash. That's okay. always super fun. Amazing. Um, so, so again, that environment where it was just constant change and constant building just fueled me. Yeah. So um, you had found your home. I did. And I, you know, I love the fact that there was always a new challenge. There was always something new on the horizon that we were, we were looking forward. We weren't looking backwards. And that's a, that's a, the mindset that I love. Like I can't do anything about the past at all. It's kind of done. So I have to be looking forward and saying, okay, what are we doing next? What does that look like? And and, and that's where I find a ton of inspiration and joy in work. Yeah. And some, it's interesting to hear you talk about that, like not having rules. It's not necessarily something that you were shaped by being in that environment. You found a home there. That was just core to who you were. You liked having freedom and flexibility. You liked giving people a lot of rope. But what about times, and maybe this is speaking to when you said some of your biggest failures, maybe wrong fit and, you know, hiring people that weren't a good fit. But again, that type of environment is, can be jarring to a lot of people. And so I'm curious, how do you, leading a people org, get 
individuals comfortable with the amount of ambiguity that's in place, mm. the amount of risk that's in place, um, and the amount of like autonomy and leeway that's in place. It's It's got to be a challenge. Yeah, so I um, totally agree with you on that. There are, I always think about people as being fit for purpose. Um, there are some environments where you look at the resume uh, between two people. They're very similar in terms of skills and competencies and things like that. But you put a person in one environment and they shine like a star. You put them in another environment and they crash and burn. So how do you determine the environment where someone's really going to light up, right? And for me, that's like my happy place. If you hire somebody and they're just lit up by what they're doing and the environment that they're actually doing that in, that's awesome. And there are some people that in a high growth, constant change environment will not thrive. And I think, first of all, being clear about what this means um, is important you know, when you're going through the hiring process to be very articulate about the amount of change that the company's going through, um, how that creates pain points that are also opportunities for you to have an impact on the organization. Some people, when a problem comes up, they're like, oh my gosh, there's a problem. And others are like, wow, look at that. That's kind of cool. What are we going to do about that? So you want to be able to Find people that can embrace that mindset and, again, don't mind the the constant change. Mm. So I think you part of it is hiring people that know themselves, you know, that are very clear about the types of environments that that they thrive in. And I think having the right interviewing techniques and mm. ways of really del delving into people's stories about when they were shining, you know, when, when, when do you do your best work? What, are, what, give me an example of a time where you were like in the middle of it and you loved every minute of it. Mm -hmm. What did that look like for you? Tell me about the environment. Tell me about the culture. Tell me about the team that you were working with. That's you know, that gives question. you a lot of insights into where people are going to thrive and where they won't. Right. And you, that's such a great question. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that one from you if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> but you feel like that, you know, the whole nature versus nurture debate around that, um, embracing a challenge or a problem as an opportunity. And it's something that's actually kind of delightful to figure out how to solve this puzzle versus individuals who would look at that and it would have caused them stress and they like more security. You feel like that that's really something that's more embedded in the person. It's not something they can learn to embrace. Oh, no, I, I think everybody can change. So I'm, I'm not a believer that we're necessarily hardwired. Um, the opportunity for change is about people being or, or wanting to learn, grow, shift, et cetera. So there are some people that grew up in a very non, in a very traditional environment where things don't change much and they like that environment, but they get exposed to this and they're like, wow, this is kind of cool. I've got a lot of freedom. I have the ability to actually have greater impact, et cetera. So I don't think that it's necessarily something that people can't embrace, but they have to understand what it looks like and make a conscious choice about whether they are going to embrace that or not. Mm -hmm. And you've seen that. That's, that's a great clarification. It's that conscious choice of, 
you have all the expectations are set appropriately. You have all the information about what you're walking into here. Do you choose to accept this mission, for lack of a better term? And you've seen folks thrive when they've made that conscious choice to embrace it. Absolutely. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. That's great. So the biggest thing you can do to support folks in that type of environment is make set expectations really clearly and be very transparent with them about what it's going to be like working here and the types of change that you're going to experience and the expectations for rapid innovation, all that stuff. You find that that's the most important thing. Is there is there anything else that you feel like you need to do to support people in a hyper growth organization really understanding what those expectations are and what success looks like? Yeah, I think a really, really solid onboarding program is critical for people's success. When you throw people into a high growth environment, there's a lot of navigating that you have to do. Um, you have to figure out who do I go to for this? How do I actually connect the dots between this and this? And so helping people really understand the business when they first start, understand how the business works and which groups do what and how do you get stuff done, um, I think is super important. I think mm. a lot of times we're, especially in high growth, we're, we throw people in and say, go figure it out. And I'm not a believer in that. I think ground people really, really well in the business, make certain they're grounded in relationships as well, that they understand and are, have the opportunity to build relationships that are going to help them be successful as they go through this. That's why I love onboarding with like a cohort of people. So you're all kind of in it together. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are things that really set people up for success or done poorly, leave them floundering and confused and struggling. And mm -hmm. so um, so I think onboarding is a really, really important part of that, especially in a high growth organization. Such a great point. And we we made that mistake early on. You know, when Mike and I first started out, there were, we had less than five people. And as we raised our Series A and grew to kind of 10 to 20 people, the strategy we had was figure it out. Like, here's yeah. your desk, here's your laptop. Like, there's a lot going on you know, let us know if you have any questions. And it definitely was a challenge. That plus some of the, you know, growing pains and learning around, you know, setting those expectations and the hiring process and making sure that this is actually the type of environment they want to step into. But yeah, onboarding is, is still a challenge, I think, to do that really effectively and have people really understand the extent to which there is ambiguity here and the speed at which we want to operate and how comfortable we are making mistakes or pushing things mm -hmm. out that really aren't that, maybe we're not super proud of, but we feel like we can learn a ton from. That is a, that's a steep learning curve for folks who haven't been in that environment. Yeah. And again, that's why I think the onboarding is critical because when we do throw them out there, especially if they're not wired for this, like there are some people that are wired for it. You throw them into the pool and they learn how to swim, right? There are other people that aren't wired for that. So if we want them to be able to navigate and be able to be successful in that environment, that's where that onboarding and teaching them how to do that is so critical. Yeah. The other thing I'll add to that in terms of success is invest heavily in management training making certain your managers know how to set someone up for success, how to give them appropriate feedback, how to help them navigate tough situations, how do they live with the ambiguity that is part of a high-growth organization. Because HR, the people team, 
can't do that for every employee, especially as you're getting at larger and larger scales. So the managers have to be really good at that in order for people to um, do their best work and love doing it. Yeah. So, so I think investing in your onboarding and investing in your management training, well, actually three prongs investing in your recruiting process and make certain certain that your interview is going to yield the right level of results based on your environment and what's really needed for the organization, then investing in the onboarding and then in the managers being able to help those people be successful. I mean, that's our commitment because when people join our organizations, they're putting their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations in our hands. And they're saying, we believe you're the right place for me to come and grow my career and support my family and all that kind of great stuff. And so I feel like we've got an obligation to do that well. No, I love to hear you say that, particularly on the manager training thing. I find that that kind of third leg of the stool is something that folks are more reactive instead of Mm -hmm. proactive around. And you're obviously preaching in the choir. This is what we do at Lingo Live. We work with hyper growth (laughs) companies to empower their managers. And we really bang the gavel about why that's so important. But we see, you know, a lot of different, you think all these hypergrowth companies are the same, but the way they're addressing that manager development is very different and very different levels of success. When we talk to them about kind of what have you done and what are some of the challenges you see showing up? I'm curious, Patty, can you share any of the companies that you've been at? Because you've been in a lot of hypergrowth companies that did this well, that had managers that actually were pretty well equipped to develop their teams and coach their teams and kind of execute on what the organization needed? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a tough critic, so I'm always thinking that we didn't get it as right as we should have, quite frankly. I hear this all the time. Yeah. That's that's why I asked the question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I will say is that I think, first of all, being grounded. So I think SynGrid did this really well. Um, not perfectly by a long shot, but I think the first key is being grounded in the values of the organization and making certain that everyone understands how are we going to work together? What culture are we building? And what are the behaviors and expectations that are associated with those values and with this culture that we believe is critical to our success? So I think getting grounded in that and making certain that the manager behaviors that you're training to, the the programs that you put in place, the processes that, that you give the managers to deal with like performance issues or coaching or hiring or any of the career development, that they're really aligned with the organizational values so that everything um, is interconnected and it doesn't feel like there's this program and this program and this program. Everything kind of points to the organizational true north and managers know how to support that well. And then the second piece of that, I would say, is if you have a manager that's not supporting that, you have to be absolutely... um, courageous in making certain that that person either gets on board or you get them off the organizational bus Mm -hmm. because that's where things start breaking down. If your managers are not supporting um, the organization on the values and modeling those things and creating teams that live into that as well. Totally. Uh, And again, I, I I get a little, um, preachy on this subject, quite frankly. So apologies to, no, to, yeah. <laughs> to you. Um, but I just think that that 
connectedness between your values and the behaviors and the processes that you put in place is critical for a cohesive people people strategy. Absolutely. And I'm glad I'm glad you are getting preachy, particularly about the notion of the managers who just you know, aren't on board and they're not willing to do the work. This is something we hear often, you know, sometimes we'll talk to a customer and they'll, they'll walk us through a, a learner that we're going to be coaching and explain someone who just isn't willing to coach their team and doesn't feel like it's important or doesn't feel like they have made any mistakes and isn't willing to be vulnerable. And sometimes we have to look at them and say, are you, are, are you setting us up for success here? Like, are you sure that coaching is the right model here? Have you explored other paths? Are you sure that this person actually wants to be on the bus, as you said? Um, because sometimes we're, you know, you're setting us up for failure. You're, you're connecting our coach to someone who doesn't have that growth mindset, doesn't have the, doesn't have and doesn't want to have the level of self-awareness that they need as a leader to be more effective, to develop in areas that they, they can and should develop in. It always goes back to the fact that people are putting their careers in your hands. And you as a leader, if you're not willing to take that seriously and and support at that level, if you don't think that's your job to help them live into their potential within this organization, you shouldn't be leading people. Full stop. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about the future of work. I know this is something that you're passionate about, and there's a lot of discussion, particularly based on the kind of tsunami that we've all ridden <laughs> the past 18 months. We went from, you know, January 2020, everything's going to be great, just like the past few years. And then obviously, pandemic hits, everybody's home, remote work is here to stay. And then, you know, social justice initiatives and corporate's role in this, you know, social responsibility and social justice. And then we have the vaccines and now we're going back to work. Oh, no, wait, we're not. We're distributed. <laughs> so it's just, it makes my head spin sometimes, yeah. especially talking to people leaders around kind of what does the future hold? And it's the answer seems to change from time to time. I'm curious what excites you and, and what scares you, I guess, about the future of work. Yeah. So what excites me is that um, the people functions day is here. I mean, there is a huge recognition across organizations that we have to invest and we have to see people as whole human beings. And we've got to create environments where people can thrive, no matter what their backgrounds or experiences might be, if we're going to be an inclusive place. So I'm excited because I've always believed that the biggest lever that any organization has is its people. But we don't always make the investments at that level that we should, it's always like, well, we're going to invest in product development over, you know, this people program or whatever. So I do think that there's a recognition and kind of a reckoning that, you know, we have, we, we have to invest heavily in this area if we're going to have the workforce of the future that we want. Um, so I think that's an exciting time. Uh, I think the opportunity to achieve equity in our organizations with a real spotlight on some of the the inherent problems that are part of our processes. So 
again, I always, I, I talk a lot, people talk about pay equity and I'm always like, pay equity is an outcome. You know, it's all the other things that go into how we hire, how we promote, how we, how we actually assess talent, et cetera, that leads to pay inequity. So how do we really address all of these things at the root cause and, um, and really solve it? And again, I know it's a, it's a huge problem and there's a lot of, of, reasons for some of these things to be just really, really hard. But I think the moment is here that um, we have an opportunity to make real progress there. So that's exciting. Um, I also think the idea that we really can embrace a hybrid workforce, that people can work in different ways. And managers have had to learn over the past year and a half that I don't have to have my eyeballs on you to know that you're working because people have delivered great work under some pretty crazy conditions. So so I think there's that realization that we have more flexibility than maybe we ever thought we did. Yeah, that's great. And, and what is the role you see yourself playing in shaping this future? I'd love to hear kind of what excites you and if it's about kind of your um, your business or, or anything else, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of the role you see yourself playing. Yeah. Before I say that, can I just say what worries me? Yeah, absolutely. I'm worried we won't take advantage of this moment. Yeah. How so? I, I just think this opportunity is right in front of us. And we're we're so crazy busy as uh, people practitioners and we've got whiplash and we're exhausted. Um, I mean, the burden that's been on people teams over the past year and a half is extraordinary. I always think about who cares for the caregiver and our people teams have been in, in, in the front line. You know, we talk about frontline workers and I'm always like the people team are also frontline workers. And so I'm worried that we're too exhausted or um, have been going through so much that we may not be able to take advantage of this moment that's at hand for us. So, um, so I, I want everybody to, love up on their people team. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I was interested to hear it when you said we aren't going to take advantage of this moment. Is it that companies will forget, right? The powers that be outside of the people team will kind of forget as the trauma for lack of a better word over the past 18 months passes. Um, but it seems like it's actually more that the people team, uh, the people leaders themselves will have the energy, the enthusiasm, given how burnt out they've been over the past 18 months to actually take advantage of the moment. I guess you're saying a little bit of both. I would say it is a little bit of both because everybody doesn't always think about, it's not top of mind for every leader in the organization. I would argue that it should be, but um, it's not. So the people team has to make certain that this stays front and center and that we don't forget and that we continue to invest in, at the right level. So it's a tough job. I mean, anybody that thinks, you know, the people that go into HR, they're like, I love people. I just, you know, that's why I want to be in HR. I'm like, it's a lot of work. And high growth companies are um, not for the faint of heart. So anyway, I, I believe people, the people teams have an extraordinary um, opportunity in front of them. And I just am hoping that we'll all be able to take advantage of it. And in terms of my role, you know, I started my own business about a, a, a year ago. I mean, I was in the pandemic. I actually semi-retired during the pandemic, but I have my own business and I'm consulting with a number of different companies that are going through a ton of growth that are trying to build strong HR strategies and trying to build 
the right people teams to be able to support the organization as it goes through growth. One of the biggest mistakes I've I have made throughout my career is hiring behind the curve versus hiring ahead of the curve. So I'm hoping that through my coaching and my business, I can help people teams get ahead of that curve um, so that they're prepared for what the business has in store for them and they're not struggling to keep up. That's fantastic. Patty, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was such a pleasure to learn more, not just about your professional journey, but your personal journey as well and how that influenced where you ended up. Well, it's been my joy to spend some time with you as well. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. That was Patty Money. You know, one of the takeaways from that conversation is I I love that story that she told about her experience as a young child growing up in her household, being involved in her dad's business and her and her siblings kind of walking around the kitchen table, putting together catalogs for for the business and how formative that must have been for her, both in terms of kind of learning how to build something from nothing, but then also how you collaborate with other people and you problem solve and work together and how you take risks and understand, you know, that you can take risks and you can fail and that's okay. That's actually part of building a business and building a company. Um, So seeing her take that formative experience and apply it into how she thinks about navigating change as a people leader is, is really cool. You can find us online at groundwork.show. I'm Tyler Muse. Groundwork is produced by Mike Giordani at Flowship. Audio engineering by Alex Roses. Production assistant by Casey Miller. Music by Aaron Sprinkle, Adrian Walther, and Coralina Combo. Special thanks to Pedro Matriciano and Natalia Krimgold. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>